Would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Tim, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer this morning? Amen. Good morning. Will you take your brown hymnal this morning to turn to 535, 535 in the brown?
Sheila. Song. Wonderful. Thank you. 228 in the back. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, page 1823 in your Q Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May the Lord bless the reading of Will you take your red hymnal this time, the red trinity, and turn to 708, 708 in the red.
Our scripture for this morning is found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. We're in a series con, uh, uh, con deal, dealing with living faith. And what I'm doing now is to take various aspects of life and teaching on how living faith will show up in that aspect of your life. And uh, the details may vary in some people's lives, but I'm giving the basic biblical principles and you will be able to see how those apply. We talked about the last time, the faith that saves. And that is the faith that repents of sin. Not saying you're sorry, though sorrow accompanies true repentance. Not mere confession of guilt, but turning away from the sin unto Christ, that he might become our life. Repentance. So faith in Christ alone is the faith that saves. Not belief in Christ plus something that you add in by way of confession or contrition or sorrow or penance or attendance to religious duties or prayer or financial gifts to the church. No, 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 no. Christ alone is the Savior. And that's what the Bible teaches. And I might add, that is what all the other religions in the world get wrong. They might have a place for Christ. I know, for example, Islam has a place for Christ in their Koran. But salvation is not through Christ alone. It's a works religion, not a faith religion. Well, today's lesson brings us to the beginning of the end of this series on faith in which I wish to deal with some very practical exhortations to us as the people of God who claim spiritual life by faith in Jesus Christ. We have Paul's testimonial statement. Let me read it for you. It's from Galatians 2 and verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, so I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. How does a believer who has died to his or her old sinful past now live his life or her life by faith in the Son of God? We have learned that there must be change. Repentance. James has taught us that without appropriate godly behavior, our faith is bogus. There must be change. Without change, we are no better off than the demons who believe in God. They do. But they remain evil spirits in practice. 
their belief, their faith, hasn't changed them. So what I hope to do as we begin to close out this series is to take a look at various aspects of life and living to see what God says about these themes, these themes, and then to ask the question, how do I, how do you, we people who claim faith in God, how do we measure up to these statements about living out our faith? As we come, let's ask the Lord to bless us. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the fact that it is the power of the Holy Spirit using the sword. He, he calls the word of God the sword of the Spirit. What do swords do? Well, they cut us. They come against us, and they wound us. They point us to what is needed to be excised from our life, cut away. I pray, Lord, you'll help us to see that we're talking about an act of repentance, not just saying, I'm sorry, but actually turning away from our sin. Bless the truth to our hearts. Oh, Jesus, send your spirit upon us. Save whom you will. In Christ's name. We're looking today at the subject of faith and marriage. And we begin by asking the question, what is or what was the origin of marriage? Where did it come from? Sociologists will tell you, and I've heard them say it, that marriage between one man and one woman grew out of a pluralistic society in which men cohabiting with multiple women began to see the benefit of being committed to one woman sexually and socially. And so society moved from a poly, uh, polygamist viewpoint to a monogamous viewpoint and when that happened, society began to approve one man with one woman in marriage. Sounds very reasonable. Appears to be logical. Seems to follow sequentially as to what we would expect to occur as man began to wrestle with the complexity of multiple women as partners, perhaps all living under one roof, Complicated life, made more simple. Personal intimacy opted for over less intimacy due to multiple partners with whom loyalty and love was divided. Oh, and that jealousy and the infighting that also would go along with that. Sounds reasonable. Yeah, Solomon says there is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it leads to death. Proverbs 14, verse 12. Also repeated in Proverbs 16, verse 25. 
Again, God says of himself, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. That's from Isaiah 55 and verse 8. So we learn of God's thoughts on marriage in the story of our first parents. And what we learn is that monogamy was the first order of marriage, not an afterthought and not the result of sociological process. The Lord God said, let me read it for you. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out of the man one rib and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, Ooh, that's my input. Ooh, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I know she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That's what the word woman means. For this reason, a man will leave his father mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Genesis 2 verse 18 and following. Jesus himself referred to this very account in Matthew 19 when the Pharisees questioned him on divorce. And his response was this. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Matthew 19, verse 4 and following. And so our Lord here, was confirming the Genesis account as the time when God initiated the sexes, male-female, and ordained how they were to live, a man leaving the abode of his parents and being united with his wife, wife singular, and those two, not three or four or five, those two becoming one flesh. Interesting, I think, that Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, goes all the way back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible. 400 years have passed since Genesis 1-1. 
until we get to Matthew. Yet it's still valid. It's still the truth. And Jesus is saying, God hasn't changed his mind on this. Well, what are the implications of the Bible's teaching on marriage? Well, number one, man began, he began monogamous, not as a a polygamous, but one man with one woman, the woman originating from Adam's own body, so a direct connect. And that means it was sin that led to polygamy. God's view of marriage was one woman for one man. When you think about it, there were no other women and there were no other men, which means God created Eve as Adam's sole partner. No evolutionary concept of the spontaneous emergence of the sexes. And... This was not a live-in situation. God named Eve as wife to Adam. God is the minister, you see, acting in this first marriage. And God himself sanctified marriage and made it official, and he made it holy. The sexual union is what made Adam and Eve one flesh, whole. Not separate entities, male, female, one complete person. And marriage is shown to be the normal order and plan of God for his people. Wow, it goes clear back to the first chapter of the Bible. And what's he talking about back there? Marriage. Marriage. This union was confined and sanctified within marriage and designed for procreation as well as pleasure. It says in the scripture, let me read it for you. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, this was the beginning of the human race, but certainly wasn't to be the end of the human race. It was to grow more and more. Right now, the population of the entire world, the entire world, right now, and I got this from the U.S. Census, is 7.9 billion people. 7.9 after all these years. We could round it off and say, well, it's about 8 billion people. All of that going all the way back. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. He goes on. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1, verse 28. We're told Adam lay with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, 
with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Genesis 4, verse 1. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 4, the writer says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So that's the Bible's definition of marriage and as to where it came, how it came about. This brings out certain implications of the sociologist's teaching on marriage. They're wrong, but they don't think they are. Since marriage is the invention of civilized men, as they think, within society... They say that society can define marriage as it sees fit. That's where they get this. The whole debate today in our country over legitimizing gay marriage is the outgrowth of men's defying God's original order. The idea that God would sanction in marriage a union the homosexual union, which later he condemns, Genesis 8, verse 20, Genesis 19, verse 23 and following, and calls perversion, Romans 1, verse 27, it's ludicrous. He didn't create something so that he could condemn it. If society gets to approve or disapprove the construct of marriage, who's to say that having multiple wives is a bad thing? I gave this message at the Pastor's Fellowship over in Flint. Or not this particular message, but I was dealing with this subject. And a visiting man that was sitting there came to me afterwards and he says yeah I like the idea of multiple wives where did that well why can't we do that he missed the total thing he was thinking lustfully if society gets to approve or disapprove the construct of marriage, who's to say that multiple wives are wrong? Virtually all of the Arab world, though not all within that world, sees nothing wrong with having multiple wives. The Mormon church in our own country teaches and practices polygamy, citing Old Testament examples as biblical support. There is a movement now in our country to approve for all what the Mormons practice in secret. The bottom line is that marriage, if the invention of men, becomes optional. Two people can commit to live in situation without 
the normal declaration and legal contract of marriage. And God's explanation as to why he no longer accepted Israel's offerings, let me read it for you. You ask, he's speaking to Israel, God is speaking. You ask why? In other words, why am I not accepting your offerings for sin anymore? Answer, Malachi 2.14. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Malachi 2, verse 14. Oh. You mean from the beginning there was a covenant? The socialists also say that sexual union does not have spiritual or sacred implications. Sex is just for pleasure, so as long as you protect yourself against having HIV and other STDs, why not distribute birth control in high schools to the students? That's what's behind this, folks. I mean, abstinence before marriage is archaic and it's unrealistic. comes out of the sociological concept that marriage is man-invented. They go on. Sexual experience should not be hampered by unwanted pregnancies or the consequences of burdening a person's career. So abortion, rather than procreation, is an acceptable option when other birth control measures have failed or were not used. Those are quotes. You see how your philosophy can affect your behavior. What you approve, what you disapprove. It's all based on your philosophy of life. So brethren, there you have it. There are two philosophies on marriage which are as diametrically opposed to each other as could possibly be. One bases its beliefs and actions upon the underpinning foundation that God and God alone ordained marriage and intimacy within marriage as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for the purpose of procreation and moral purity within the culture. The sociological secularists view teachings that marriage is the invention of men within society. And so society can determine what constitutes marriage. Who may, who may we marry? How many legal partners may constitute a marriage? What intimate expressions are permissible? When, where, with whom? And what we may do with 
any unwanted babies conceived in the aftermath of these decisions. So here then is the challenge. As a person of faith in God, which scenario will govern your life? Will you obey the principles of God laid down in his word, or will you opt for the world's distortions? Will you try to mix the two systems together, saying, well, I believe marriage is to be between one man and one woman, but I I think it's nigh to impossible for young people to abstain from sexual conduct until marriage. Or again, I personally do not believe in abortion. I don't think it's right. But I would not not presume to impose my beliefs on another. I think people must decide for themselves. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, says it this way. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14, verse 34. May I say that sin is sneaky. Sin seeps in and it pollutes the heart of a nation. Sin also corrupts the piety of Christ's church through what we call toleration in the name of love. This happened in the church of Corinth. It was tolerating, in the name of love, a man in the congregation who had committed incest with his stepmother. And Paul says, your boasting is not good. (laughs) They were proud of this. He goes on. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. No, with such a man do not even eat. What business is of ours to judge those outside the church Are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside. You expel the wicked man from among you. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 and 5. Wow, that's pretty strong. The The world would tell us it is none of your business as a church what goes on behind closed doors. But God tells us that unchecked sexual sins are the yeast of malice 
and wickedness that pollutes the whole church. So it isn't love which turns a blind eye or a deaf ear. People's souls are at stake. And more importantly, the integrity of the church and the glory of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Well, thankfully, the church at Corinth opted to believe Paul and God's word on marriage and sexuality, and the adulterer was thrown out of the church. And guess what? In the course of time, he repented of his sin. He was restored into the church again. And you can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 and 5. The world could care less that a man was rescued from hell's destruction. But let me tell you, the church should care. The church should care. As people of faith, we must believe God over the fine-sounding arguments and logic of a world devoid of faith. Are you living by faith in God's word on marriage and intimacy? Secondly, what is the partnership of marriage? Or to ask it a different way, who is a suitable partner for marriage? Well, not a person of the same sex. That's obvious. But that being said, who of the opposite sex would constitute someone sanctioned by God to become your spouse? Free choice teaching in this country, even among evangelicals, has asserted that we have a right to choose anyone whom we wish to marry. That's our right. The premise is, well, you know, people fall in love and, and love must win out. Yes, but as a Christian woman or a Christian man, you've already committed to love God on the basis of what Jesus called the first and greatest commandment. Let me read it for you. This is Christ speaking. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And Mark's account adds, and with all of your strength. Mark 13, verse 30. So this is the first and the greatest commandment comes from Matthew 22, 37, and 38. He did not say, love God with all of your might until and unless you meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Didn't say, share your love between God and the man or woman of your dreams. God will understand. No, he won't understand. What did he say? Love God with all of your heart. Love God with your total soul. Love God in your thought life. In Mark's edition, love God with everything you got. Uncompromisingly, unequivocally, with all of your might. 
On the surface, it sounds like, oh, well. And that means we believers cannot love anybody but God. Sounds like that. So the question comes, is there no love that we may have for another person? Well, of course there is. In fact, are we not commanded by our God to love others? Duh! It's in there. Let me read it for you. A new command I give you, this is Jesus, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. John 13, verse 34. That's pretty clear. Again, this is my command. Love each other. John 15, verse 17. So Jesus cannot be violating the first and greatest command, which is to love God, when he actually commands his disciples to love each other. Paul goes on to say the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever else commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, verse 1. Now, by the way, Paul practiced his own admonition, saying, Greet Ampelatus, whom I love in the Lord. Romans 16, verse 8. Or again, For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Now you know Timothy wasn't his physical son, but he's talking about he's my spiritual brother, my spiritual son in Christ. And three times in our text, Paul commands love within the marriage relationship. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 25. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 28. Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Verse 33. Wow. He just can't get off this theme. Guys, listen up. Love your wife. Love your wife. Love your wife. Paul wrote to Titus saying, Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Titus 2, verse 3 and 4. Would you ever think you had to teach somebody to love somebody else? But Paul says, yeah. (laughs) We're such mean-spirited people at times. The only person we love more than God is what? 
I love more. Love, then, is the distinguishing characteristic of God's people. Let me read it for you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, verse 35. We know by all this that Jesus' command to love God with all that we are, does not mean, it, indeed it, it cannot mean, that we're not to love anyone else. Least of all, another person of the opposite sex. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone, we read. It isn't good for most believers to be alone. So how do we reconcile the command of Jesus to love God first, love with him with all of our strength, with these other commands by Christ and his apostles to love others. The principle is this. I'm reading scripture. If you love me, you will obey what I command. John 14, verse 15. We love Christ. We demonstrate that we believe Christ by obeying his commands concerning, among other things, partnerships in marriage. What does God have to say about marriage partners? Does he have anything to say in this area? Oh, yeah. God has spoken on all of life, and that means... He would not neglect something as vital as marriage. Think about it. In marriage, two people are coming together in a solemn covenant before God to pledge love to each other with God as their witness. They pledge to love each other in sickness and in health, in prosperity or poverty, in bad times as well as good times. This and more, they vow before God, and before human witnesses. They are instructed by God's word that the coming together will result in two flesh, two bodies, becoming one in an intimacy that's so close that dreams and aspirations and goals and money and resources are all melded together in such a way that individual eagles give way to a united concern and love for the other to the point of personal sacrifice. Wow. I never thought of it that way. Well, you need to think of it that way. Despite the frivolity and careless way the world enters into marriage, God's people see and believe the spiritual connection and responsibility associated with marriage. We do not think simply of a sexual mate, but rather of a soulmate. A soulmate. One who shares our faith in and our love of God. 
Paul gives us the criteria for a marriage partner. Here it is. I read it. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Translation. Don't partner with any unbeliever. Marriage, business deals, other enterprises, and so on. For, here's the reason. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or, what fellowship, what fellowship can light have with darkness? Well, that's a good one. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial is a Old Testament biblical name for the devil. He goes on. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Answer. They have nothing in common. For we are, he goes on, the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and my daughters says the Lord Almighty. So, love God first, love God the most. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 and following. So, as simply as I can make it, Paul is saying, that when you go looking for a marriage partner as a believer, you have to consider the spiritual dimensions first and foremost. The men cannot say, oh man, she is, she is so beautiful. And the women cannot say, he is the most handsome man I've ever seen. That's the world talking. It's your flesh talking. God is saying, if you have faith in me, if you love me, you will obey me in marriage as in all else. My will for you is that believers marry in the faith. Marry another believer. A person who loves God, loves his word, as much as you do. A person who knows God through faith in Jesus, as you do. A person who will partner with you in intimacy, yes, but also who will want the babies who come and will endeavor to raise them in the knowledge of God. Paul, in speaking of a woman whose husband dies, and leaves her a widow, says this. 
A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. True. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone else she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. He must be a believer. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. Nothing left to chance. Nothing left to fate. Still, yes, your circumstance changed. You lost your husband. Or you lost your wife, as the case may be. Yes, you can remarry. Scripture says so. God says so. But there's this condition. If you are a believer and you lost your spouse, when you remarry, you must also remarry a fellow believer. The reasoning behind this is that marriage is involved with far more issues than a vibrant love life. Marriage is a partnership in thinking, in solving problems, in setting goals for the future, in using methods which will help you reach those goals. Marriage is about earning money. It's about spending money. It's about philosophy on child rearing. It is about where to worship God and on what basis. It is about setting priorities because few have the means to do all that they would like to do. So set priorities. Marriage is for better. Marriage is for worse. You will need a partner willing to weather the storms of life with you, come what may, and they will come. You see, anything less than a spiritual partnership in the soul will not do. So the young women here this morning I say, guard your affections. Mr. Dreamboat may be rotten in the keel and ready to sink you and him in his own sea of selfishness and grief. Young man here this morning, guard your lusts. Miss Playboy model of the year may be nothing less than the woman of Proverbs 7, of which Solomon warned his adult sons of her intent. Let me read it for you. This is her speaking. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. With the persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose to an arrow pierces his lever, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. 
Proverbs 7, verse 17. Mr. Solomon, who was married to hundreds of wives. You say you believe God. You say you love God. How then are you doing in your search for a life partner? Are you looking for someone in all the wrong places? Does the person you admire love God as you do? Are they committed to Christ in faith? Is there evidence that he or she knows the Lord and is progressing in spiritual knowledge and holiness? Is the faith you say you have in God genuine or is it bogus? Now, true, faith values marriage. Firstly, by preserving or revering marriage. Divorce statistics show that one half of all marriages in America end up in divorce. Even more shocking, and it is to me, is that the lists, the stats, are identical in the professing church. One half of marriages and individuals. That is to tell me that the church has bought into the lie of the world, the Hollywood mockery of marriage, in which cohabitation replaced marriage. According to our Census Bureau, U.S. Census Bureau, they list the world's divorce criteria. Everybody? Here it is. All these things the world says is valid for divorce. Lack of commitment. Lack of communication between spouses, infidelity, abandonment, alcoholic addiction, substance abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, inability to manage or resolve conflicts, personality differences or irreconcilable differences, differences in personal and career goals, Financial problems, different experiences about household tasks, different expectations about having or not having children, <coughs> interference from one parents from one's parents or in-laws, lack of maturity, intellectual incompatibility, sexual incompatibility, insistence on striking to sticking rather to traditional roles and not allow room for personal growth, falling out of love, religious conversion or religious beliefs, cultural and lifestyle differences, inability to deal with each other's petty idiosyncrasies, mental instability or mental illness, criminal behavior and incarceration for a crime, 
in short, this list, 25 reasons, justifiable reasons for divorce. Oh, and the list keeps growing. I'm sure this is an old list that I got my hands on. Okay, what is God's divorce criteria? Does God permit divorce? Yeah. He's got two criteria. Not 25 and grow. Two. Number one, sexual infidelity. I tell you, I'm reading scripture. This is Jesus. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Matthew 19, verse 9. The Pharisees had just asked Jesus this question. Hmm. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Boy, there's a loaded question. Think about it. Note, in that statement from our Lord, there's no command here to advocate that divorce because of infidelity has to occur. It's a permission thing. Do you know that many people whose marriages were like this, they were butting heads together, they got together in Christian counseling and their marriages were saved. So they didn't have to get a divorce. Jesus was not saying you have to get a divorce because of infidelity. No, you can forgive the person. Oh, there, there's a revolutionary concept. Actually forgive them. Yes. but permitted if you can't get past it. Praise the Lord, many people do work it out. Second reason for divorce, biblically. It's abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Oftentimes in a marriage of two unbelievers, they're both unbelievers. One will come to know the Lord as Savior and the other not. Oh boy. The newfound faith causes turmoil in the home because of the divided spiritual loyalties. Paul puts it this way. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, I'm reading scripture. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Wow. 
Why? For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. So just living with a godly person is going to have a spiritual effect on you. But if you divorce them, bye-bye, that ends. He goes on. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. Believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and 5. You see how reasonable God is? He knows that sin is going to enter into marriages sometimes in such a way that there's going to be this breach. And he does not say, as I've heard some pastors say, well, you got to stick together. Yeah, but if I stick together, you know, he beats me every once in a while. And he certainly tongue lashes me. Boy, do I get it. There's no peace. This can happen any hour of the day or any hour of the night. I'm scared to live with him. And he's mean towards the kids. You gotta stay there. God is saying to them, no you don't. No you don't. God's called you as a believer to peace a peaceful if your divorce does not fall under one of these two categories then there was no biblical basis for it but having said that divorce which occurs before coming to know Christ are forgiven among, along with all other sins. Even if your divorce should have been avoided because you knew better in the Lord, that sin is forgivable through repentance and faith. This is not an excuse for the divorce, but it is to say that there are no second-class believers in God's family. We all stand on the merit of Christ, not our performance record. Our performance record is pocked with sin. I don't want to stand on my performance record. For Christians contemplating divorce, my injunction is that that God gives in Malachi 2, verse 16, it says, God hates divorce. Pretty simple. God hates divorce. Why? 
because he calls it, and again his words, a breaking of faith. The trust that you pledge to one another. Therefore, we need to be marriage advocates at all costs. When problems in marriage arise, we need to seek counseling from a biblical counselor who's going to hold you responsible to your vows and give you biblical solutions for marital conflict that you are experiencing. At all costs, we try to save So that's my second point. Firstly, we're to preserve marriage, but then secondly, we're to promote marriage. True. The Apostle Paul advocates that believers copy his single lifestyle, saying, and let me read it for you, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman should have her own husband. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 and 2. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6 and 7. Okay. Uh, why would Paul downplay marriage when God promotes marriage? Why would he say, you know, I, I just, I think you all ought to not get married. Like me. Just commit yourself to being single. Paul tells us what he's thinking. This is good. He says, he doesn't just say, I'm against marriage. I think you should, nobody should get married. He says this. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry... You have not sinned. Wow. <coughs> but those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. That's 1 Corinthians. <coughs> Excuse me. First Corinthians was written in A.D. 55. The year of the riot in Ephesus, wherein Paul barely escaped <clears throat> with his own life. 
Emperor Claudius had expelled all Jews from Rome in 40, A.D. 49, according to Acts 18, verse 2. In A.D. 54, Claudius was poisoned by his wife so that her son Nero could ascend to the throne. Boy, what a jewel of a wife there, right? I'm going to kill you, hubby, because I want my son to be on the throne. And it was Nero who, in but seven more years after his becoming emperor, would order the beheading of Paul after his house arrest in Rome. All of this I'm saying, and Paul was saying, desperate times require desperate measures. And in light of the desperate times, I'm advocating, Paul is saying, I'm advocating no marriage. So, in general, we promote marriage. It's most important. Are you wedded? to Christ as a believer, then the church is called his bride for whom he died. Verse 25. In the Revelation, what do we have? We have this elaborate chapter describing the wedding supper of the Lamb, celebrating his triumph over all evil and victory of his people through faith. So in general... God does promote marriage. But if it's hard times, no. The world, our world, has been through some hard times. During World War II, during Nazi Germany, the Jews, just because you were a Jew, were quartered in these German cities. You lost your freedom. You lost your family. Men this way. Women this way. Children. Through the gas chamber. Hard times. Rough time to be a parent. Rough time to be a wife. Rough time to be a husband. And Paul is saying, hey, just don't put yourself through that. going to be able to stand and see your wife abused. Your child execute? You think it can stand up to that? Paul says you don't have an idea what's coming. Caligula was the worst Roman Empire emperor when it came 
to persecuting Christians. Be crucified then on crosses along the Roman pathways into Rome. Painted them with tar and set them on fire at night to light the pathway into Rome. Paul was alive when that happened. Until, of course, he lost his life. Because he was a Roman citizen, here it is. Why didn't he get burned on a cross? Well, they were going to do something very terrible to Paul. And Paul said, uh, uh, do you know I'm a Roman citizen? And the centurion said to Paul, I'm paraphrasing, Ooh, only with a great price have I obtained that ownership. In other words, I've bought my Roman citizen from Rome, and it cost me a lot of money. And Paul responded, Okay, yes, but I'm freeborn which means he was a Roman citizen by birth, not because he bought it. And a Roman citizen by birth had the world at his feet. Now, they could be executed for crimes, but they could not be crucified. They could not be burned at a stake. They could not be flogged. Well, how were they executed? They lost their heads through the soul, through a soul. Say, so I won't. I wouldn't like that. Let me tell you, that was fast and effective. And so, it was a mercy to them to be able to die that way, rather than through a torturous way. You have no idea what believers went through during the time of Caligula and others like Nero. Just for being Christians that love God and try to live their lives according to the Bible. You say, well, that was then and this is now. Let me tell you, right now, right now, in our world, Christians, are being persecuted in Arab world countries all over the globe. Our Lord, we just pray that you will give us understanding of how blessed we are. And we are so blessed to be in America. But the day may come, sadly it may come, in which we will be persecuted and tortured for our faith, just like the days of old. 
if those days come, wouldn't it not be very wise of us to marry? If we are unmarried, we should stay that way. Why? Because the person that we love and we want to marry will be subject to persecution. And we're going to have to stand there and watch that. How horrible that would be. That would break our hearts. But the world doesn't care about anything about breaking our hearts. They're out to break our will. Our fidelity to God. Lord, make us strong. Thank you for the truth of the scriptures. Thank you that you have promised that along with persecution, you will supply a way for us that we might be able to escape. We praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 703 in Trinity. 703 in Trinity. That's your red hymn. Let's stand together and we'll sing. Yeah. 
God, we are so thankful today that if we know Jesus as Savior, our fate is secure. We shall, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we shall be absent from the body when we die, but instantly present with the Lord. How can that be bad? Wow. That is so wonderful to think about. We didn't say it. You said it through your apostle in the word of God. So we have nothing to fear if we know Christ. Though if we do not know him, we have everything to fear. Work in unbelieving hearts today to show that life on this earth is ticking away. And it will not be forever. There's a judgment day coming. And there'll be fire and brimstone and all of the horrors of God's wrath and judgment when the earth shall be destroyed. And all who are unbelievers will go with it. I pray for most change of heart because that's what it's going to take most change of heart repentance in unbelieving hearts here help them to see there is glory in, for, in serving Christ there is glory in knowing his forgiveness and the glory is found in the promises of Whatever we are experiencing now is temporary. Won't be this way forever. There's coming a glorious day. We do pray for our sinful world. We pray for our leaders in this country. We're told to do that. Our president, his cabinet, Congress, Senate. won't always be, our country won't always be the way it is now. Bad days are coming. But to know God, the creator of the universe, the one who is really in control, is the greatest joy 
and the greatest peace of heart. Stir our hearts to know you, Lord. Grant us the repentance that we need. We're so stubborn. We want our sin. We love our sin. But we won't love the consequences. Honor your word. Thank you, Lord, for your word. That you are God of truth, that it's impossible for you to lie. So whatever we find in your word is true. Right to our dying day. And I thank you for that. We are dismissed.